0: Associates have a very important meeting tomorrow night in the Annex at 7 o'clock. And the, uh, if I say this date wrong, somebody may have to correct me. Saturday night, I believe, uh, they're taking a bus, the bus from here going to the gospel meeting at Maud. And David Connolly uh, is the uh, preacher who's preaching that night at Maud. And a bus will leave here at 6 If you're interested in going... He is the preacher at Liberty. uh, And that... um, I'm pretty sure Saturday night is correct. Is that... Okay, good. Good. Saturday night, leaving here at 6. The Salt Team 3 members uh, will host... Salt Team 3 will host a youth night meal in the Grove Sunday night after uh, our Bible class services. And team members are asked to bring chips and dessert. More information will be coming out about that, but Salt Team 3 will host a youth night uh, in the Grove following our Bible class services. Good evening. Good evening. evening. Uh, That's great. Um, It is Wednesday. Many of you have uh, had a long day. I can tell you I don't have as much energy on Wednesday evening teaching as I do on Sunday evening. I didn't think there'd be much of a difference, but... uh, There is, but that's okay. It's always a great opportunity to be together, and we are in a 13-week series in a course of study in which we are thinking about, looking at, and examining the topic from God's Word of personal evangelism. So before we do that or as we get into that study, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our most gracious... And Holy Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to open the bread of life, to open your word, and to study from it. We pray, Father, for clarity of thought and open hearts and minds as we consider this powerful subject matter that is a part of your desire for us and your plan for us in our a part of our Christian lives. Help us study it in a way that is practical, in a way that gives you the glory and you the service to the salvation of souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, as we open our—I'm sorry, the announcements. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Um, May I do that at the end so I close with it that way? Okay tonight, as we look at, as we get into our study, as you'll notice on the screen, this is lesson two, but it's also part two of our introduction. As I said last week, we're an introductory focus to the course. We looked at literally the title of the series, A Study of Personal Evangelism. First, by underlining the word study, what are we going to do as far as this topic? Not just read about it, not just talk about it, not just think about it, But break it apart, look at it academically, what does God's Word say about it? What does the Bible say about this topic we have titled or deemed personal evangelism? But not just academically, but also spiritually. How does what we learn from the Word of God about this subject matter, how does it connect to us spiritually? How does it resonate with our spiritual, our souls, our eternal souls? And how do we apply it as far as our spiritual lives? But also as we break it apart, as we connect it to who we are spiritually as Christians, how does, I want this to be practical, practical. Sometimes it's very easy to Read something and think about something and understand it, but yet not really be able to reach out there and grasp it, to put it into our own um, scope of life and understanding. And that's where I want us to truly work hard in this particular study. But that brings us, and so I told you I wanted us to take the time to do this correctly, I want us to look at the third term, a study of personal Evangelism, And I promise you, I'm not trying to, to merely take up time or to be super simplistic or especially not to be silly. I'm being very serious. I want us to, if we're going to study personal evangelism, what do we mean study? What do we mean evangelism? Oh, I went to, uh, I got ahead of myself, didn't I? We talked about evangelism. I want to touch on that again, just to, by way of review. Simply, and we, we looked at Matthew Mark sixteen fifteen. We looked at Acts eight four. We looked at Matthew twenty eight nineteen, and learned that there are some different words. That when evangelism, we are going out there, and in some cases, proclaiming a truth. That word, that Greek word, caruso. We're going out there and just proclaiming the truth. Mark sixteen fifteen. And in other cases, we are Matthew eighteen, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen. We are teaching, or preaching, or, or sharing the gospel in such a way, with the intent and purpose of helping someone else understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to become a disciple of Christ, to live a disciple of Christ. You say, isn't that the same thing? Yes and no. Same truth. Same results but applied in different contexts because there are different people in different situations. And that's where we're going to really get into this uh, in not too long. But we also learned that the gospel, mm, Acts 8-4, the idea of euangelion, that word, it's preaching too in the English. But it has the idea of not just proclaiming a truth, but sharing it, sharing the good news of what the Bible has to say about the gospel to other people. And that gets into different elements of life. Why different words? Because the Holy Spirit understands that there's a. we need to understand what exactly what this idea is, this evangelism. That big E word in the English sometimes sits way up on the shelf above us, and we love it, we appreciate it, we agree with it, but it's always just a little out of our reach when it really shouldn't be. And that brings us to the third word in our title personal personal you say well isn't that self-explanatory i don't know let's think about it for a minute how do you define or explain the word personal now you got to speak up if you're going to talk and no excuse me you have to speak up when you talk how would you define the word personal and it might be one of those words that you say well I kind of know what it means. Everybody knows what it means. And I don't know if I can put it into words. Try. Personal. Oh, applying to me. Okay. Anybody else? That That's pretty spot on. Personal. The word personal, if you looked it up in the dictionary, I want you to listen to this. I meant to put it on the screen. Of affecting or belonging to a particular person rather than to someone else. Now listen to that. Listen to what it says because the ramifications or the applications are going to be very specific. Of affecting or belonging to a particular person rather than somebody else. So if it is a personal situation for that moment... While there may be applications of the principle and of the truth to all the other people besides me, if it is a personal application, at that very moment, the light is shining only on one individual, me. And whatever it is, is resting in front of, in the hands of, in the scope of, in the life of, me. That's personal. Hmm. Okay, now, what are some ideas or some understandings that you associate with the word Personal. Okay, here's one very simple, uh, not meant to be sarcastic, but if we're being, and because sometimes we use what I'm about to say, being sarcastic, but I don't mean that. If we say to someone, or if it is a reality with someone, that something is a personal problem to an individual, it's yours. Do we sometimes, though, try to blame other people with those things that are actually personal problems of ours? We do. We do. But in the end, that fails because personal means, as grandma used to say, it comes home to, who said that? Who said roost? That's right, it comes home to roost because that means at the end of the day, it's mine and mine alone by virtue of the fact it's personal. Dale, if I said, okay, Dale, tonight, it is your personal responsibility to make sure these two doors are locked. Who do I expect to lock the doors? Okay, nobody else. Because that's his personal responsibility. Now, if you get that, you're saying, man, you're being awfully simplistic. You don't think we're dumb, do you? Of course I don't think you're dumb. But I want to make sure that I don't miss the fact that if I'm going to call this thing personal evangelism, and if I'm going to understand that principle from Scripture then the idea of personal means, as the old saying goes, I guess the buck stops here. Personal means the consideration is mine. Whatever it is, there are, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's interesting because that's the very first point we're going to look at tonight. That very good. How, let's, let's hold that for just a second because that's what we're coming to. I want us to have three focus verses, and we're going to have some others just like the one that, that you mentioned just a moment ago. But there are three focus verses that I want us to look at as we go through here. And I didn't set my timer, so I'll have to be pay more attention. Let's look at Acts 8, 1 through 4. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4. Okay, somebody read that for me. Really loud. Go ahead, sir, please. I said earlier, man. I can't emphasize this enough. I want this to be super simplistic, overly simple, as in you can't miss it. So when I look at this, if I said, okay, and I'm not trying to, to make this an English class, but the word th- those, those who were scattered abroad, verse 4, well, first of all, who are those? Who's the antecedent of those? Christians? How do you know that? The words "Christians" not up there. Ah, your persecution against the church. He made havoc or he ravaged the church. Acts twenty and verse seven, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Christians are those who are in the church. Okay, so in Acts 8-4, those who went out, those who were scattered abroad, they went spreading the good news, spreading the joy that was in them about Jesus, about the salvation in Jesus, and they shared that with other people in a way that those people became disciples of Christ. Okay, it was personal. How do you know? Because the church moved out in various places, and it was the church who took the gospel. And I think that's very important. The church didn't send emissaries out there. They didn't send representatives. They didn't send teams. Nothing wrong with that. But as they went about going where they were going because of why they had to go, it was really kind of irrelevant. When they went, they took what they had in them with them. Okay, now let's look at the next one, Mark 16, 15. These are our focus verses. I know somebody can quote that. Go ahead. Go ye therefore, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, wait. What does that verse say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Okay, that is a. Are y'all ready? I want you to explain. Explain this statement. I want one of you to volunteer and even stand up if you want to and explain this statement. Jeremy's smiling, so he may want to do that. Because I know Jeremy was, probably shouldn't tell you this, but Jeremy was in my 8th grade English class. I beg your pardon. Uh, (laughs) He was. But uh, Jeremy, that verse in the English, Greek as well, but in the English, is written... In uh, there, It is an imperative sentence written in the second person point of view. <laughs> okay. Now, and you say, why does that even matter? It really doesn't unless you understand that second person, while you're always told never to write in you when you write a paper for college and all that good stuff, second person is only meant for directions. It's only meant for instructions. Uh, cookbook. And, and instructions, you know, the things that men don't read. Uh, those are in second person. That means whomever is reading it, whoever is reading it, it's talking directly to that person. An imperative sentence means, literally, it's an imperative. You have to do it. It's a command. It, it's an it's absolutely have to, yes, you must. That's why it's written that way. What does that matter? Because that verse says, the, the subject is you, understood you. So when I open my Bible and I read Mark 16, 15, I understand in, through inspiration he was talking to those disciples. And did he not say in the book of John that the uh, you would be guided into all truth? And we have been given truth, and so we read that verse in truth, and I pick it up. Miss Bridget, when you pick that verse up and you read it, do you know who Mark sixteen fifteen is talking to at that moment? You. It's talking to Jeremy when Jeremy reads it. It's talking to me when I read it. And you say, What does that have to do with anything? It has to it has everything to do with everything. Because when I read that verse, God is telling me that I have a personal stake in this need to go. Because of the way the words are structured. It's not accidental that he gave us words. Okay, let's think about the last one, Galatians 6, and then we'll we need to pick up the pace a little bit. Galatians chapter 6. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. In this text, now the church is being addressed. This is an internal... Consideration. All right, someone read this verse, uh, these verses, 1 through 5. Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Okay. Not to turn this into a sermon, but I find it very interesting when I look at verses uh, uh, three and four. Anyone who thinks he is something, um, or actually looking at the end of verse one, considering yourself lets you also be tempted. Don't read that. I'm not so. Su- Maybe the principle is there, but I think there's something more. That that verse isn't saying, hey, you be careful when you go talk to that person who is caught up in the sin of whatever it is, that you don't get caught up in the same sin. If you look at that context, he seems to be saying very strongly that you don't get caught up in the idea of thinking you're special because you're still faithful and he's not. You don't get caught up in the puffed up idea that, well, I'm still in the boat and he was dumb enough to fall out of the boat. It's his own we have, we be, we're warned not to think that way. Be careful, he said, because while you're doing that, you're leaning over the boat too, and you're going to end up in the water just as well. Sure, that's it, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. As I've often said, it does no good for us to stand on the inside and look outside and say, hey, you're on the outside. You, don't, you need to be on the inside. I guarantee you they know that. Or they used to know it. Uh, there's something else. He said, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. So the personal thing is, the, the, the focus verse here, and then I want us to get into a little deeper thought here, is that, and I want to use an analogy. I use the boat. I heard an old preacher one time say that uh, this verse is boiled down to a very simple understanding. If you're in a boat with someone else and that someone falls out of the boat, don't stand there and look at them until they drown. Do what you can do to get them back in the boat. So the question is, or the idea is, if here we are in this whole structure right here is a boat, and one of us falls out of the boat into the raging storm and is in danger of drowning, is it our responsibility to call somebody else to come get them? Yeah, so in other words, if you're still in the boat, you have a vested interest of responsibility in doing something for that one who is not in the boat. Does that make sense? Okay, so with those three verses in mind, I want us to look at um, uh, some quick understandings here about this concept, this personal evangelism. Number one, personal evangelism is a personal consideration. It's a personal consideration. Now, what I mean by that is, I've already looked at those verses and we've kind of explained those. It's a personal consideration. If I'm in the boat, someone else has fallen out, It it falls on me to do something. It's a command to me. If I am a member of the Lord's church, there has to be... No, excuse me, let me rephrase. There is a place in my spiritual life where God expects me to do something that falls under the category of sharing Christ with somebody else. Now, with that thought, though, you mentioned something. You understood the idea of personal. Okay, personal consideration. Think about 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, which is the verse you alluded to a moment ago. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done or he or she has done, whether good or bad whether good or evil. That's judgment, right? Okay, at judgment, when I am being judged, whose life is under consideration? Yours. Whose works, deeds, behaviors, good or bad? It's yours. That's the personal consideration of it. Personal evangelism is a personal consideration. When I go to Acts 5, now, we won't read that for time's sake, but Ananias and so yes, let's read it. Acts 5, because there's one particular thing I wanted you to see. And when you read that, you're going to think, okay, and that's why I was a little bit hesitant to put this, because someone watches this later, Jeremy, and reads that and says, what's that got to do with personal evangelism? It's this consideration part, and I want you to hear it. When I read those four verses, of course, the church has, is in its infancy, and Satan is already very busy. Verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession... And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also became being aware of it it, and brought a certain part and laid at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Okay, we know the account. We know that they died at God's hand. We know that they sold something as was happening in the church to provide for those in need. But they lied about it. Basically, they sold a piece of property, kept part of it in their pocket, and said, hey, we sold this for this. So it was for their own glory and not God's. But what's that got to do with personal evangelism? Look at the, per- the next verse. It's this next phrase. Look what Peter said to Ananias. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Okay. It was a personal consideration. Ananias had the choice to sell the land or not sell the land. He had the choice to give part of the money or give all the money. It was up to him. It didn't matter. That wasn't where he erred. He erred in his pride and his lie. Okay. Personal evangelism is a personal consideration. I have to understand God expects of me He has commanded me. I am a part of the church, therefore I cannot decide not to. It's in my control how I go out or how I teach or how I share Christ or how I function as a personal teacher of truth, however I do that. That's in my control. But when I pretend that I am when I'm really not, When I pretend that I am whole in my service, when I am leaving out parts of what God has asked of me and respected of me, I better be careful. It's a personal consideration. But number two, it's a personal command. Now, this one doesn't need much. These are pretty quick. It's a personal command because Mark 16, 15, it's in second person. When I look at it, he's talking to me. In fact, when a preacher reads that or I read that, everybody in the room falls under the understanding that we must be those who are, Matthew 8, 28, 19, we are going out and teaching others in a way that they will eventually become disciples. Okay, it's a, it's a personal command. It wasn't a suggestion in Acts 6, excuse me, Galatians 6, that when someone falls away from the Lord, it's a good idea that somebody, surely somebody's got the time to go and reach out to them and try to restore. No, that's not how that passage is worded. He said, if a brother is overtaken in a fault, and by the way, that word overtaken um, has the idea of being caught in a web. Caught in a snare, caught in such a way that they have lost their own footing. So the understanding is, is that the context of that passage, uh, Dale, you're going to have to say to stop preaching because that's what I'm going to start doing in a minute. When you look at that verse, the idea of overtaking in fault, it's not the idea. I can remember well uh, my mom saying, "Don't go out of the yard." And I understood, I better not go out of the yard. But if she looked out there, and I had gone out of the yard and fallen into a whale, can you imagine? Y'all know what a whale is, right? Uh, and, oh, I'm sorry, that was insulting. Yeah, of course you know what a whale is. Um, I believe God made sure it had a plan for me because I was hunting when I was 14 and went farther than I was supposed to. I'll always remember this. And was in the middle of the woods no house evident for miles and i heard the board crack when i stepped on it on my right foot and it went down and as i went down i put weight on my left foot and it cracked and i went down and sat on a board in the middle and it didn't crack and i heard the pieces of the board hit way down in the water nobody had any idea where i would where i would have been so I'm very fortunate and very blessed, uh, I would say. But can you imagine if I had fallen in that whale and eventually my father and my mother found me and shined, shined the flashlight and said, well, that was pretty dumb. You really need to get out of that whale because you're going to freeze to death. Man, you'd think he'd know better than that. Let's go back to the house. Is, is that as dumb as that sounded? Yeah, <laughs> Jonas is laughing because it really is that dumb, isn't it? But can you imagine doing that? But are we not guilty of sometimes doing that to people who have... That verse says they are overtaken. They're caught. They're not just out there and you say, well, that's dumb. You need to come back. The understanding of that context is that they have gotten themselves mired in the quicksand and whether they want to come back or not, they're going to have to have some help. Their need... Is also connected, not just their need to repent and come home, but their need to have some help to do that. Because that's what that verse is about. So it's a personal command for us. But number three, it's a personal responsibility. I want you to think about the idea of responsibility. What's a responsibility, by the way? What's a responsibility? This is a little scary. It, oh, it's a job you're responsible for. Give me an example. Yeah, Dale's supposed to lock the doors. Yeah, okay. Uh, have any of you ever told your children to take a particularly smelly bag of garbage out only to come... Oh, I see that that has happened. Only to come home to open the door to an extremely unpleasant aroma. Has that ever happened to anybody in here besides me? Okay, of course, you get it, right? The responsibility wasn't done. Personal evangelism is a personal responsibility. Take Matthew chapter 25, for example. There were three individuals who had talents. One, two, and five. Each of them had different levels, but each of them were expected to do what with them? Could use them. And the shepherd lost a sheep. Whose job was it to go find the sheep? A widow lost a coin. If the coin was ever going to be found, who was going to find it? The widow. Okay, so you you get the understanding of personal responsibility. And when you think about those verses that we've already looked at, personal evangelism is a personal responsibility. But it's also number four, and I'm not meaning to go too fast, but I want to look at, these are all essentially the same thing, but different levels of the same thing. A personal commitment. Now, tell me what a commitment is. Saying you're going to do something and doing it. Okay. A commitment. Anybody want to add to that? That's a great answer. Regardless of what happens. Oh, okay. Um, it, for some reason, I don't know why I had this memory, but I enjoyed. I ended up loving the sport, football, and glad I got to play and played when I was in high school. Um, But I remember very well as a freshman, after a particularly rough practice, I was done. My mother did not want me to play football. And here's an interesting my mother begged me not to, but I played. And that same mother said to me, No, sir, you're not quitting. Jonathan knows my mother. Uh, You're not quitting. Because you made a commitment. Now, if you want to quit when the season's over, that'd be great. I'd love for you to do that because I don't want you to play anyway. But for now, you're going to put the suit back on and do what you committed to doing. And that seems like a little thing, but that foundation seems to have followed me. Commitment. A personal commitment is if I have someone that I have put my spiritual focus on. if there's someone I know is lost, if there's someone I know needs the gospel, I'm committed to it. That means they may reject me once, twice, thrice. And there comes a time when, like I told you last Wednesday, when the lady closed her Bible after reading the passage that she said, she caught herself saying, I don't care what the Bible says, I've always... And then she caught herself and just said, we won't study anymore. She refused to sit down with me anymore. So therefore, it was out of my hands. But I had a commitment to continue going. You have a commitment. If you commit, it's a personal commitment. Think about what that means. But number five. Oh, wait a minute. I want to look at this. Look at Matthew chapter 9 told you I was tired. Matthew chapter 9. And let's look at verses 36. We're good on time. 36 through 38. Would someone read that? Matthew 9 36 through 38. But when he saw Into his I would live to see a time in our country, in our society, where employers were begging for employees and can't find them. I remember a time when folks were begging for work and couldn't find it. And I'm not about to launch into some political tirade. I'm certainly not. But if you think about that, the idea... I actually graduated with a fellow, and you think I'm going to, that I'm making this up, but I promise you I'm not. He ran a body shop, a body and fender shop, and he did quite well for himself. And still does quite well for himself. But I remember my wife said, hey, look at what he's put on Facebook. Look what... He put an advertisement out that said if you are not willing to get up at early in the morning and come and stay all day, don't come and apply. And then he went ahead to say, y'all ready for this? He said, Mothers, please do not call me asking for your son a job. If he wants a job, he needs to get up and put his clothes on and come down here and ask me for a job. Because what he was finding is Mama wanted him to work because she wanted him out of the house. Uh, but he didn't stay long. Why? He didn't want to work. He wasn't committed. The idea, when he said the laborers are few, pray that the Lord of Harvest will send laborers into the harvest, a laborer is not a laborer unless that laborer is willing to go all the way to the end of the road. That makes me think of the time when my, my grandfather, I loved him dearly, and he, he taught us, um, I can remember filling up the back of a pickup truck with watermelons and giving them away. Uh, um, guess who hoed most of the watermelons? Uh, I remember him conning me and my brother into, and I say conning very lightly, uh, he said, I'll tell you what, we'll plant the whole bottom, two and a half acres, the whole bottom in peanuts, and you guys, when we, we when we get through what we have left over, y'all can sell them and make money. You laughing because, yeah, we worked ourselves silly. Do you know how much works in peanuts? No, yeah, I don't know that I could have held how much profit we made in my hand when it was all said and done. When you put all the labor together. But I learned so. I remember him saying, "Go all the way to the end of the row, hoeing, and not just the short ones either, because you have to be committed. You have to do it all." In Matthew fifteen four and verse eight, uh, I mean verse four and verse eight. Think about that shepherd again. Where'd that shepherd go to get that lost sheep? Come on, think about it. where'd he go didn't matter where he had to go. He went into the wilderness and he looked until he found it. What did the widow do? Where did she look for the coin? That's right. Do you hear the commitment in that? The commitment in that. How many people would have looked for that coin for five minutes and if it didn't show up, it's gone? But I understand. Um, How many? Okay, that's commitment. Number five, personal evangelism involves a personal attitude. A personal attitude and a personal application. I go back to the understanding that you read just a moment ago that when Jesus said he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus did not say, send me laborers or send laborers, Lord, pray for laborers. Until he recognized, until we recognize how horrible it is for a soul to be lost, and that's another lesson, a whole lesson, until we are moved with the compassion of a lost soul, then it's going to be hard to really become committed to this personal evangelism. An attitude. Um, Again, that Galatians 5 I think about. If we do not look out there and, and feel compassion for that person who is lost, it's going to be hard for us to ever really do what it takes. Because have you ever tried, just real quick, and then we need to move on. Have you ever tried to save a drowning person? Have you ever tried to get somebody in a boat who'd fallen out of a boat? Now, I've done that. I have taken teenagers uh, on canoe trips before. And I won't take the time to tell those stories, but I've been on those canoe trips. Uh, and I finally got after the first or second trip. I just jumped into water to begin with because what's the point? I knew I was going to be wet before it was over. Uh, but more than once, I have rescued, you know. Teenagers are very big and brassy, bold, until they go upside down in water and get washed up against rocks. And they're no longer brave, and they're hanging onto the rock, calling your name. And so you have to get that canoe, and you have to get them, and you have to figure out how to get that canoe over and the water out of it, and them out. You have First, you have to get them to turn oh, oh, loose of the rock. Because literally... I thought we were going to have to call search and rescue on one occasion because I had a young lady sitting on a rock about four miles down Bear Creek in the middle of nowhere and she said, I'm not moving. I'm not getting off this rock, I'm not getting in that water, and I'm not getting in that boat. I said, well listen, uh, it's about 12 miles back to town and the only way there is in this boat. I'm not moving. So. Sometimes it, it, it takes some effort, I think is the, the point I'm trying to make. It, it, it takes, uh, you have to want to help that person. Okay, let's look at, this thing is sensitive, um, Mark, 15, Mark 5 and verse 19. And I want to do this one real quick. I go back to, to Luke 15 again um, while you're turning to Mark 5 and verse 19. In Luke 15, that, go back to that shepherd. Back to that shepherd who went out after that lost sheep. Think about all the way down at the end of the passage, that father whose son left, who always was watching. And you think about that widow who lost that coin. Why did she look so diligently for that coin? Why did that shepherd go and go to the end, wherever he had to, to find that sheep, and then put it on his shoulders, by the way, and why did that father always look down the road which his son had taken in leaving? What was the reason? Never gave up hope, love, recognized the value, right? Had a love for and a need for, uh, understood the value of. And that's an understanding that the reason why there's joy in heaven over sinners who repent is the same reason that the widow sought the coin and the shepherd sought the sheep, the lost sheep, and why the father longed for the son to return and looked down the road for his return because they loved, because they understood the value. That's why there's joy, because when something of great value is lost and then found... That's an attitude of personal evangelism. I apply that to my approach. I can't approach teaching somebody who's lost the idea of, I'm found, you're lost, I'm saved, you're not, I'm up here, you're not. Let me show you how to get there. You're not selling a used car, you're seeking the salvation of one of God's souls. That's a, a, an attitude. This is just a quick overview. But number six, there's two more. Personal evangelism involves personal possibilities. And by the way, I didn't read Matthew five nineteen. I want to read that because it's going to apply here too. Okay? Somebody read Matthew five nineteen, please. Finding mm, no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof I didn't in this bed. Oh, I said Matthew, didn't I? I meant Mark. I can't read my own writing. <laughs> it's supposed to be. Uh, well, okay. I said Matthew, it says Mark, you read Luke. Okay. Uh, I love it. Okay, now let's drive Mark 5.19. In that situation, he wanted to go with the Lord, but the Lord simply said, no. And we hear the word no. We hear the, there was no rejection there. There was a reason that Christ sent him home. I don't know all of it. I know part of it. He said, you go home and tell your friends. Now, I'll tell you my opinion. My opinion is, it's the Lord who knows the hearts of all men, knew that there were souls within that circle of friends that were ready to be taught. That's just an opinion. But he said, go home and tell your friends what things the Lord has done for you. I want to suggest to you that personal evangelism involves personal possibilities and opportunities that are unique only to you. They're unique only to you. You know, I find it interesting that in Acts 8, and I, I, want to, I got to go fast here, but in Acts 8, when it said they went everywhere preaching, that's euangelion. That's spreading the good news. Now, but you go down further. Philip went down to Samaria and he preached the gospel. That's the Greek word caruso. He proclaimed it um, formally, but then you go further. Philip, same man, got into a chariot with a man from Ethiopia, and it said he began at the same creature, uh, same scripture. Thank you, and preached. But this time, the Greek word is euangelion. Why is the Holy Spirit using different words to confuse us? No to show us the different applications and the different situations in which we will be able to teach other people about Christ. So we need to be t- tuned into that. We need to think about that. But very quickly, and I want to do one last, is that personal evangelism involves personal risk in sacrifices. I did that one last, but I want us to make sure we understand that. And this maybe is why sometimes we fear. If we fear, all right. When I go to James five nineteen and twenty, he said, "If one of you," he says, "Brethren, if you, if one of you errs from the truth, and and if, well." And you bring him back, you convert him, the King James says. Turn him back, you hide a multitude of sins, save a soul. But the idea there, I want you to think about that. In James 5, if you look at verse wonders from the truth and someone turns him back. Let him know he, who, who uh, turns the sinner back. If someone errs from the truth and turns him back. Okay, that sounds so simple. It sounds so easy. But how, how do most people usually react when they have erred from the truth and you reach out to them to say you are going in the wrong direction, please turn around? Negative? Do we like negative? We don't like... What's the best way to avoid negative? To avoid it. Okay? And then one last verse in Jude 1, 22 and 23. Uh, the, when I look, he says, on some having compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, hating, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted with sin. Okay, now, do you understand this? Listen to his analogy. In order for me to pull somebody out of the fire, what do I have to do? What? What? Can you do that without smelling like smoke? This is not an accident that he uses, can you? No. Do you run the risk of getting some burns yourself? Now, if you touch a filthy garment, you hate it. But if you touch it, are you going to be in contact with something that's unpleasant? There's some sacrifice and some personal risk. In order for me to save souls, sometimes I'm going to have to be very close to that, which is very unpleasant. And we don't like that. That's our human instinct. Now, that was about a six-day study in 40 minutes. Um, And it's time to stop. Thank you so very much. Let's close with a prayer, and then our parents will go. Ken and Anita ask for us to please pray for our friend uh Hetty Gerber. She's in the hospital in South Africa with COVID. The next forty eight hours is critical. So let's pray with for sister, Sister Hetty, okay, as we close. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. And as we close our thoughts for tonight, may we consider the personal aspects of evangelism as we consider ourselves as your servants who teach others. And now as we close, Father, we ask you especially on the bended knees of our hearts to remember Hetty Gerber, who's in the hospital in South Africa dealing with this dreaded uh, disease, COVID. And in these next 48 hours, Lord, in the, within your holy will and according to your grace and mercy, be with her and those caring for her. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay, parents, you may go.